outlining. So we are going to continue with our eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel series. You will be, we'll take a break whenever they get down here. And uh, what I probably did is I probably in my hurry emailed element four E's outline to Catherine instead of element five E. So this today will be element five E, and we're going to look at the humanity of Jesus Christ in didactic perspective. Okay, so uh, we will spend a minute or two reviewing anyway, so let's go through this. Uh, in Roman numeral one, you should see uh, the eight essential elements of the gospel that we are trying to cover in this series. We have This is the 25th message in the series, and we are on element five, Jesus, the only mediator. Now, as Roman numeral two points out, for the first 20 messages, we looked at elements zero through four, and we looked at um, the whole idea of defining the bad news. Uh, the, you know, a lot of people point out quite rightly that very few people want to hear the good news of Jesus Christ because both the secular world and the church world have kind of minimized uh, the predicament uh, that the Bible brings out that man is in before God. So we've kind of come to have, uh, a lot of people call it uh, today's Christianity, moralistic therapeutic deism. And this the sense of moralizing is that you can self-improve and you can bridge the gap yourself. But the gap between God and man is so great that it took God sending his only son uh, who became a man, as we're going to look at today, we're going to look at the humanity of Christ, God himself in human flesh uh, had to die for us in order to bridge that gap. And that's not just to pray a sinner's prayer, but that's to live by every day. I cannot bring forth anything. There's nothing good that dwells in me apart from living in Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life that I live in this body, I live by faith, that is by clinging to, relying on, trusting, and being empowered by the resurrected Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us. That's the only way you can bring forth any kind of character uh, that's, that's acceptable to God. So in, uh, now we've moved on to element five, uh, Christ is bridging the gap, in the, and we're looking at Christology, because Jesus said, who do people say the Son of Man is? And uh, Peter answered, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But other people had other opinions. And to this day, we're going to actually talk a little bit more today about what the Antichrist is, because in, in modern popular culture, it's become this like person. Uh, but the Antichrist is a spirit that would replace Jesus with anything else. And the Antichrist is talked about in 1 John 4 as a present reality. Many Antichrists have gone in, out into the world. All false religions are an Antichrist because they have another Jesus. And as 1 Timothy 2 says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So, uh, Three and four weeks ago, we looked for a couple weeks at the Lagos statements and the I am statements of, of, about Jesus saying, I am, equating himself with Exodus 3.14, I am that I am, numerous, numerous times, 20-some times to 40-some times, depending on how you count them, in the book of John. Then 
Last week, we uh, kind of introduced the subject of, uh, or no, uh, I guess it would be two weeks ago, we introduced the subject of eight crucial elements of Christology, and you could count them as 10 or 12. Uh, there's nothing spectacular about the number eight, but those elements um, include his sinless life, his prophetic witness, his miracles, his passion, his atoning death, his resurrection, his ascension, his glorification, his present reign, and his second coming. All of these are really important. And so then last week we started talking about the didactic teachings of Scripture. If anybody's been around this church for a few years, you know that we teach a lot about how to use the Bible to get many of the messages that you can't get uh, just looking at the didactic teaching. That is the literary devices, the word pictures, the metaphors, the parables, the typology, the case laws. There are many things that you need to know about how to interpret Scripture, but the most common hermeneutic, the most common way of interpreting Scripture is uh, just the straightforward didactic teaching. So again, I want to define didactic one more time, and then uh, hopefully they'll get the message down here soon because uh, I can... Uh, uh, can't review much longer here, but um, didactic is defined as, in this way. In scriptural usage, it's the straightforward or plain language teachings. Teachings could be substituted for doctrines or statements. The plain, forward, the plain straightforward language teachings or doctrines that contain theological, moral, and exhortive instruction to which aesthetic and literary considerations are subordinated. Again, the Bible is full of aesthetic and literary considerations. It's a beautiful piece of literature. So as we're going to see today, uh, for instance, the tabernacle uh, of God is among man in the, in the doctrines of the humanity of Christ. And the tabernacle is a theme that starts in Genesis 1 and ends in Revelation at the end of Revelation. So uh, the Bible is full of these kinds of ways of looking at Scripture. And... Uh, it's important for us to uh, to understand that, but it's also for, full of straightforward uh, teaching. And in fact, there's a doctrine called the clarity of Scripture. When someone is being drawn to the kingdom by God and they start to read the Bible, they will understand things clearly out of the Scriptures. They will miss most of the message the first time through, but they will start getting many things that are that are needful and helpful for their uh, relationship with God, for their salvation, for their being reconciled to God. The message of Scripture is clear, although studying it hundreds of times for a lifetime always yields deeper and deeper and better and better insights. So uh, that's one of the great things about journeying with God. Now, the didactic approach is the most common approach, and it's because it's vital and needed. All right, so that was the beginning of last week. Then last week we looked at straightforward scriptures about the deity of Christ. There's a bunch of them on the back of your outline from last week if you still have that. And we ended with um, one that I didn't really get to talk about, so we'll, we'll talk about that, and then we're going to have to take a break till the outlines get here. Um, so uh, my, that is probably my bad. So... Let's look at Luke 18, 18 through 22. You, you should have Bibles in the pews. Hopefully you bring a Bible to church. It's amazing how many people go to church without Bibles these days. Kind of a strange phenomenon. That's, modern things are so different. 
course, then the other people have a Bible on their phone and so forth. So look it up in your phone or your iPad or the Bible in your pew or the Bible you brought with you. Luke chapter uh, 18, verse 18 through 22. Now, this particular passage, you can almost tell uh, a what's called an orthodox within the bounds of biblical historical orthodox, meaning right worship or right beliefs, Christian group by their interpretation of this one passage alone. All false religions turn this passage around to mean the opposite of what Jesus is saying. Just ask any Mormon or any Muslim or any other false religion that believes Jesus was a historical figure that has redefined Jesus as something, someone in not non-biblical terms. So in Luke 18... Uh, by the way, this uh, passage is a central passage in a highly recommended book about the gospel called uh, Today's Gospel, Authentic or Synthetic by Walter Chantry. That's on our recommended foundational book list, and I would encourage you to read it. But he uses this passage as kind of a demonstration of today's gospel versus uh, Jesus' approach to the gospel. So a ruler questioned him or some, uh, some of the Gospels say a young ruler, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing, that's a very important word, one thing. There's some Christians who have conferences called one thing. It's very common because they're basically saying the one thing is God. One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, I'm actually going to read a commentary's explanation of this passage first, before I add some more to it. So um, so let's uh, listen to this. The custom uh, in the time of Jesus, Jesus, uh, this young man was thinking that Jesus is a rabbi, and the custom in rabbinical times was to ask questions. In fact, in Hebrew thinking, a man or woman is considered wise not by the depth of their pontifications and teachings, but by the depth of their questions. So in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is 12 years old and they find him in the temple, what, what is he doing? He's asking questions to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and confounding them with the depth of his questions and kind of causing them to squirm and putting the screws to them as he did all through his ministry. He was constantly uh, saying a, a type of question that's called an enthymeme. And an enthymeme is a question where the uh, conclusion is self-evident and you're sort of forced to the conclusion, but you let, leave the other person to say it. So Jesus says constantly says things like, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day? 
because they held themselves as being correct interpreters of the law, but they had added hundreds of traditions to the Sabbath day commandments uh, that were legalistic and binding man and, and not what God ever intended and so forth. And so uh, it's to the point where you couldn't even do good on the Sabbath day. You couldn't do anything. You weren't allowed to spit on the Sabbath day because if you spit, uh, your spit might hit a seed. And if it hit a seed, the seed might germinate. And if the seed germinated, uh, then you would have actually been doing agricultural work by spitting. That's how far they took binding man down with every little thing. Now, I'd prefer you didn't spit like in the parking lot <laughs> or, or, or the sidewalks or even especially in the sanctuary. But, uh, but, but it's not because it's the Lord's Day. <laughs> so um, Jesus basically, when he says, are, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day? He's, he's, uh, the obvious answer is, of course, God, you know, it's supposed to be holy to God who alone is good. So this is what's going on when this, this young man comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, good, man, you're, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, um, Jesus is basically saying, I'll have none of that good teacher stuff. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but let's read this guy's version first. So Jesus uh, responds to the rabbinic question. The custom was for potential disciples to approach a rabbi whom they wanted to follow. If the rabbi was interested, he'd ask them questions to determine if they were suitable candidates. Remember that Paul chose, uh, was chosen by Gamaliel and so forth. Jesus said to the disciples, follow me. The, the disciples were not uneducated men, which is the common belief today. They had grown up in the synagogue, which means they had memorized at least the first five books of the, of the Bible and most of the Old Testament. Testament, they were 10 times more educated than most pastors today by the time they were 12. So uh, the disciples, though, were guys that none of the rabbis had chosen. And so when if you didn't get chosen by a rabbi, you went into your father's business. And so they had become fishermen, at least the first four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, following in their uh, father's business until Rabbi John the Baptist Teacher John the Baptist said, come follow me. And then he pointed out Jesus. And then later Jesus says, come follow me. And so they leave following John and become followers of Christ. So if the rabbi was interested, he'd ask them questions to determine if they were suitable candidates. If not, he would send them away and they would go home and take the trade of their father. If he accepted them, he would say, come follow me. And they became the rabbi's disciple. One teaching technique the rabbis used was posing questions. He would ask a question. Uh, he would ask questions his, of his disciples, and the disciples would debate amongst themselves, and the rabbi would listen. When he had decided the correct answer, the discussion was over, and the disciples accepted the rabbi's judgment. To us, it seems a counterintuitive that asking a question is how others, not the asker, learns. But this idea was understood by those living at Jesus' time. That's why when Jesus was 12, he was found in the temple. I didn't realize he covered a lot of that stuff. As I read this two weeks ago, so sorry. Uh, when Jesus was 12, he was found at the temple asking questions of the teachers, and they were amazed at his knowledge. He wasn't learning from them. He was teaching them. Likewise, when his disciples finally realized he came from God, they said, now we know that you know everything and don't even need anyone to ask you any questions. 
We're all familiar with that passage, I hope. So I really don't think that the question was a rhetorical question for emphasis, meaning, of course I'm not God. It's not, I'm not that good. Jesus isn't saying that when he says, why do you call me good teacher? No one is good except God alone. Instead, it was a combination of a job interview and a teachable moment. Uh, I'm not sure if the rich young man intended to offer himself as a disciple of Jesus. It was seen, seems pretty clear that he, that he uh, was genuine about wanting eternal life, but not necessarily did he want to follow Jesus. Either way, Jesus answered by inviting him to be his disciple, beginning by testing his theological and moral knowledge, teaching him about himself. If you want to be my disciple, the most important requirement is that you know who I am. And uh, go ahead and start passing those out, Logan. Thank you. So... Um, Here's the riddle to get you thinking. If I am good, as you said I am, and God is one, and only God is good, then who am I? That's what Jesus is saying. He's, he's actually saying uh, kind of the same thing that C.S. Lewis says in his Lord, Liar, Lunatic, uh, um, famous uh, apologetic, that you know, almost all religions of the world that do not accept the biblical definition of Jesus as being God Almighty— in, in 100% God, in 100% man, living a completely sinless life, uh, dying a substitutionary death for, for us, being buried, being risen from the dead, ascending and being glorified and pouring out the Holy Spirit. The, the religions that don't accept that all think of Jesus as a good moral philosopher or teacher. And Jesus was always from the beginning saying, that's not an option because... He is constantly saying that he's God. Excuse me. Forgot to get rid of my cell phone today. So if um, he's constantly saying he's God. Now, I have talked to a lot of people they, that said they were God. Uh, because I've talked to a lot of people who did so many drugs that they totally blew their minds. I uh, mostly have talked to them in insane asylums a couple times in the basement of my house when I was 17. But uh, <laughs> uh, because many of my friends had done acid like every other day for no enough years that they had actually lost all touch with reality and began to think they were God. And they ended up in insane asylums. Moral of the story, don't do drugs. But uh, and uh, realize that you're not God. So... Um, but so Jesus could obviously not be as together of a person. For three and a half years, the smartest people in Israel looked for one statement they could trip him up on so that they could accuse him of being wrong. And in three and a half years, they couldn't do that. Now, I would submit to you that most of you could do that with me in about three and a half minutes. You know, we have a young lady who doesn't go to our church but comes to the Tuesday night Bible study at Wright State, and she regularly points out one, two, or three times every Tuesday something I said that wasn't quite right or I didn't say it right. And she's like ready to pounce as soon as I say something that wasn't quite right. And, and, so, and I'm like, you know, we could do this all day because I probably said 50 things that aren't right. But... Um, Jesus, they couldn't find anything that he said. So obviously, he's not insane, right? That's not even an option, okay? And someone could, would not be morally good if they're claiming a false hoax that they're God their whole life. 
when they're not. So you could just throw all of his moral teachings out the window. So the, the whole concept, he's either crazy or he's lying, or he actually is God. And that's what he was put on trial for, being God. And if you really study the Jesus of the Gospels, there's no real logical alternative than he is God Almighty in human flesh, the greatest man who ever lived, worth reading the Gospels 1,693 times just to begin to gaze in the beauty of his face and his heart and his mind. Anyone who has met him is in the Gospels all the time because He's the Lord Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. He's the, he's the ultimate man. There's all kind of crazy ideas about what being a man is in our culture. Read the Gospels to find out what it means to be a man. So uh, hopefully you have the, today's outlines by now. Uh, thus, we conclude that by testing the young man's ability to forsake everything for him, he invites him to be a disciple. Come follow me. Then he answers the question in two ways. Firstly, believe that I'm God. And secondly, be my disciple. Now, just to make this clear, if you're not clear on this, if you notice, uh, Jesus says, keep the commandments to the young man. And he says, which ones? Right? Or Jesus says, which ones? Or who says which ones in the passage? Um no one is good. At, you know the commandments. Keep then uh, Jesus list. I'm sorry. So Jesus says, "You know the commandments," and he lists all the commandments on the right side that have that he summarizes as the second commandment that that have to do with loving your neighbor as yourself. Notice he doesn't list the first few commandments that have to do with loving God uh, and having no other gods beside Him and keeping the Lord's day holy and and all these kind of things and no, no graven images and no false idols. Jesus doesn't list these to the young man. He lists all the moral ones about our fellow relations with humanity. And the young man says, I've kept there all of those. And Jesus actually doesn't uh, debate him on that point. Probably he could have. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know about you, but I've broken most of those uh, just in the last week. But, uh, <laughs> you know, so uh, hopefully not, not but... Uh, Probably. Uh, I have to take stock to realize, but I'm pretty sure we've, you know, coveted. And has, has anybody not coveted recently? <laughs> uh, has everyone been perfectly thankful and content with your life situation? You know, so anyway, um, anyone nev never cheated on their taxes? Thou shalt not steal. Wish the federal government could know that commandment. Um, so, um, Jesus doesn't question his asserting that he's kept all those commandments. He takes the discussion to, a, to the right plane, and he says this. The problem is, buddy, you have idolatry in your life. You love your money. Now, he didn't tell everyone, go sell everything you have and come follow me. But that was what stood in the way of this young man following him. Every one of us has things in our life that stand in the way of whether we're going to follow Jesus or not. Sometimes it's the fear of relationships and we, and you know, we've been hurt and we're withdrawn or shy or whatever. Sometimes it's uh, codependent relationships, uh, which is relational idolatry. Sometimes it's uh, 
you know, uh, worshiping uh, success in one way or another, like championships or higher promotions at work or whatever. All of us have idols. And what God always does is he addresses the, the, the idols of your heart right from the beginning. Because until those idols are crucified, you cannot be his disciple. It's a law of physics, so to speak. It's a spiritual law, and you can no more jump off a building and hope that if you got good momentum, you'd be able to fly, than you can become Jesus' disciple when you still have idols in your heart. And you have to, you have to renounce and repent of and confess his sin and turn away from the idols in order to receive Jesus at the start of your life. You can't do the modern sinner's prayer that I'm a sinner, which we mean yeah, I've probably made some mistakes. I'm probably not perfect. No, you have to get down to the real issues of your heart in order to get started following Jesus. It's as simple as that. So actually, this passage is one of the great passages that for the deity of Christ. All Christian commentators from the, the, from the apostles to what's called the fathers of the church, to St. John Chrysostom, Augustine, always have interpreted this passage this way. The reformers, in even, even today, evangelicals, uh, reformed people, um, if you don't know the differences theologically between them, it's okay. There are two ty- types of Protestant camp- camps, even most liberal Protestants, uh, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, all of them would interpret this passage as Jesus saying, I won't have any of this good teacher stuff. I'm God, and you need to understand that. And I won't have any idols and any false gods before me. Okay, so this is actually one of the great passages on the deity of Christ. All false religions turn this around and say, see, Jesus said, why do you call me good? I'm not, I'm not good. I'm a, why do you, you know. Uh, and and you can find Mormon commentaries and Islamic commentaries and so forth that turn that scripture around. All false religions turn that around. That's the essence. Who do you say that I am is the starting point of Christianity. All right, so moving on from there, hopefully you have the outline now called 5E instead of 4E, my bad. And uh, we, uh, that's where we had ended up last week. So hopefully I can get us through this week. We've are, and uh, we are now ready to turn the page to the backside of 5E. So today we're going to look at uh, the humanity of Jesus in didactic biblical perspective and some implications thereof. I hope I have time to really bring out some of the implications. I want to do basically three main points about the humanity of Jesus. The first one is that God became a man in Jesus Christ. And that means the tabernacle of God dwelt among men. A tabernacle is a place where the fullness of God's glory, his presence, his being dwells. That's why Jesus says to the, in, in the context of talking about the church in Matthew 18, where two or three doesn't take a big church, it takes two or three of the real thing to gather in my name, and there I will be in manifested for manifesting my glory in their midst. Okay, so in John 1, it says the word became flesh, and we dealt with John 1, 1 through 5 or so before. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the Greek word is something like 
Sco, I forget, Scone, whatever. I decided not to get into that because it just means he tabernacled among us. He was a temple of God among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, the context is he says the law came from Moses. There was The law was grace. God chose Israel, not Deuteronomy says, not because you were mightier and so than any other nation or more than any other nation. He chose them just because of his great mercy. The reason you're a Christian, if you're a born-again Christian, and if your heart has really been made alive and regenerated by the Holy Spirit in Christ, and then you've received a new heart that wants to turn away from sin and wants to pursue and love God, uh, though you may stumble in many ways, uh, that you did that because of God's grace. No one can come lest the Father draws him. God began a certain time to, to draw you through circumstances, situations, people talking to you, whatever. Uh, it's interesting that lots of new Christians become Christians because uh, another new Christian led them to Christ because new Christians have more network of unbelievers in their life. Lots of new Christians are become Christians because someone just became a Christian in their friendships or their families in the last few months. And that's clear in the Gospels. Philip found Nathaniel. Peter went and found Andrew. So, um, you know, um, the Word of God became a man, and he was the very temple of God among us. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 says that the church has now become the temple of God. So here's what's actually happening in biblical perspective. Let me go ahead and read Revelation 21, and then I'll talk about what's happening in biblical perspective. Revelation 21, 2 and 3 says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Now, this is not about the future, by the way. Uh, This is about an eternal present truth. Uh, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men now. And he will tabernacle among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be their God. And God himself will dwell among them, and some, and some manuscripts add, and be their God. So, Um, in the Bible, let's put this in perspective. The Bible interprets the Bible. So to understand any passage, you need to read the whole Bible. So I always get people, I try to get people to start in Genesis one and Matthew one and read quite a few chapters each week, uh, until they get to the end of revelation and start over in Matthew one. And when you get to Malachi four, get to start over in Genesis one and read the whole old Testament hopefully once a year or, or so, or at a minimum every other year, and read the whole New Testament at a minimum once or twice a year, but hopefully two or three times a year. And if you do that year after year, after you've been a Christian five or ten years, you'll really start to understand the whole thing coming together. So in Genesis, in, before time began, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit lived in a perfect tabernacle. The glory of God filled the whole universe because that's who he is. Then he created the angels. Uh, and the glory of God uh, and was, and was manifest everywhere until some rebelled, Lucifer and so forth. We don't need to go into all that that much. But then God, had he had an eternal covenant. 
Hebrews 13, 20, the blood of the eternal covenant between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, outside and above time before time was created, God had always intended to make man, and he always knew that man would sin and fall and rebel against him, and that the Son would come to redeem man, and the Holy Spirit would come to make man a bride for his Son, and that the Son would then give it all back up to the Father, as 1 Corinthians 15 says. This has always been the purpose of God, to bring the kingdom of God, to fill the whole earth in a time, space, continuum world. So in Genesis 1, God creates a garden, and that garden is the perfect tabernacle of God. There's no sin there. There's no death, neither dying. There's not the second law of thermodynamics. There's not the law of sin and death, uh, and so forth. Then sin enters that garden. Most theologians think it probably didn't take more than a few days to a week, but maybe, it, who knows, doesn't give us that. But uh, when sin entered that garden, God, with tears in his eyes, had to escort man out of the tabernacle because no evil can dwell in the presence of God. You cannot become before God with sin in your mind and heart and so forth. And that's why we can only come by the blood of Jesus Christ, humbling ourselves, receiving his grace every day, every minute and every hour. There's a great Christian song. I think we've sung it a few times. I need thee every hour. That means really I need thee every second. <laughs> So we can never come before God on anything else except the works of Jesus Christ. You're saved by works, the works of the Lamb of God. Because you could never stand for a cosmic second in your own works. So um, that tabernacle, God, God didn't stop intending to fill the earth with the glory of God. And he always intended that the centerpiece of his temple would be men and women filled with the Holy Spirit, living in family, living in community, living a way of life under the Lord. That's why Christianity can never be done alone. So this radical individualism of Western culture is anti-Christian to the core. We were meant to have a shared life. One of Satan's greatest plans for you is to keep your inner thoughts and feelings and so forth locked up inside yourself and to have you have no one you can be honest and real and, uh, and so forth with. And that's why there's so much performance-based Christianity, because if you've been touched by a performance-based Christianity, you have the message inside your heart. I can't tell them that I really do this and that or this or the that yes you can because you know as paul said i'm the chief among sinners it's the only bible verse in the bible that you should disagree with paul it, because you should think of yourself as the chief among sinners and therefore if someone says i'm a chainsaw massacre murderer rapist uh thief who cheats on my taxes uh you 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 what you you don't go oh my goodness I, I, I'm so much holier than that you go yeah me too <laughs> you know you know I hope you understand there probably we have very few people in the in the pews right now uh, who've actually physically murdered someone in a heart but every one of you is a murderer 
Because Jesus says, if you even hate your brother or or if you call him an empty head, have you ever called someone an airhead? Have you ever thought of someone else as dumber than you? You murderer. So, you know, we, we, this is Grace Christian Fellowship. Our new slogan is the church for murderers. <laughs> Adulterers, fornicators, uh, thieves, liars, and uh, fools. <laughs> Starting with the pastor. And uh, who have been redeemed and, and changed and have started on a journey towards sanctification that if we look back at who we were, progressively over the years, we can say, wow, it's so awesome how much God has given me maturity and sanctification, and I become a kind of person I never could have imagined. But if we look forward to who he is, we realize we've only just begun. (laughs) You know, I'm just a babe in Christ. We know in part, we prophesy in part. We, we, you know, we will be known fully and then will be fully known. Whoever has this hope sanctifies himself. We chase holiness and sanctification every day despite our falling short of it because we know that's our eternal destiny. And because he's put that in your heart to journey towards Jesus. And there's no destination in this life. That's why one of the great things you have to learn as a young Christian to enjoy the process because there's never anything but process in the Christian life. You know, one of the great mistakes that lots of people make is they overcome certain uh, emotional problems or they grow a little bit or whatever, then they stop. You only do that when you're looking back at how far you've come. If you continue to look forward to who he is, you'll never stop. All right. So that's the tabernacle of God uh, became among men. Of course, uh, Noah's ark was a type of that. Then, then God uh, called Abraham and his people to be that, and that's what the people of the Old Testament were meant to be and so forth. And there were physical foreshadowings of the tabernacle, but the people of God themselves were the great foreshadowing of the tabernacle. And eventually the tabernacle himself came and lived among us, Jesus Christ in a human body. God was in man in the person of Jesus Christ fully. That's what Paul says in Philippians, the the fullness of the deity dwells in Christ. That he was the perfect temple as much as heaven was. Here on the earth in a time-space world, and he got hungry after he had fasted 40 days and probably other times too. And he walked and probably got blisters when he walked long ways. I don't know. And, uh, and he had real temptations, which is my next point. Let's get into this. Christ versus, uh, that's my third point. Let's do Christ versus Antichrist. This is always and forever the choice. Every man is deciding between Christ and Antichrist. And even after you're a Christian, you continue to progress in sanctification by choosing Christ over Antichrist. 1 John 4, 1 through 3 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming and now is. Uh, 
So Pilate, remember, in all four Gospels, it records that Pilate gives the people a choice between Christ or Barabbas, right? Now, Barabbas means son of the father. So do you want the real son of the father or the false son of the father? There are always many false sons of the father. That's what thinking you can change the world by politics is. Barabbas was a revolutionary. He thought what we need is better government. If we can just get this party out and get this party in, things will be better. Sound familiar? Unfortunately, that's all too common in both the liberal and the conservative views of Christianity today. Guess what? It's not going to be better by a government. It's going to be better by a grassroots ground movement that restores the church and individuals and families and the kingdom of God to what God intends. And God will change the world for his glory and fill it with his glory prior to Christ coming back. Now, uh, I wish I could preach on that one, but I, I only got five minutes or so left. Or, so let's get into this very present help. I, I really wanted to have much more time for this. Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4, I'm going to actually let you read them, but it basically tells us that Christ had to become a man in every way as we were. He had real temptations. And on a certain theoretical level, it was possible that he could have sinned. Now, that wasn't according to the eternal covenant. It wasn't according to the predestined foreknowledge plan of God and so forth. But there were, he had real temptations in every area that you faced. And that's why this humanity of Jesus thing is so, so practically important for you. Everything you face, are you struggling with the emotional depression? Try having Jesus disciples. No, <laughs> you know, are you... Uh, he would, are you struggling with sexual temptation? Are you struggling with, you know, just being grouchy and tired? Uh, are people abusing you? Have you had friends turn away from you because of your going closer to Christ? Then t draw closer to Jesus because his best friends were, one of them betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, and, one, and the rest of them fled and ran when they came to arrest him, and the, and the one who proclaimed the most loyalty denied him three times. I need friends like that. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, if, you, if, you, if you think you, no one, you know, I, uh, I was talking to someone this week about how we all go through this like I don't fit in the church and I, so forth. Just what? You, Jesus did too. And you draw near to Jesus and talk to him about it. I really wish I had more time to develop this point. Psalm 46, God is a refuge and strength, a very present, uh, another translation, abundantly available or well-proved help in trouble or in tight places. Ever been in any tight places? Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the seas, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake and swell with pride, there is a river, and that's all metaphorical stuff about the city of God, the holy dwelling, the church. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. Remember, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God is in the midst of his people, his city, the city of God, the church. 
the tabernacle of God that is within with men. And God will, uh, will help her, the church, when the morning dawns or at the turning of the morning. We are living in a time of great outpouring of the Spirit worldwide. And although there is some of the most shallow versions of Christianity that are the most ill-advised and, and, and misconceived versions that have ever been on the planet, that is not the last chapter because when the Holy Spirit comes, he will lead the church back into all godliness and all truth and all holiness. The Spirit of truth will come to teach us and guide us to truth. And the things we're saying about restoring the whole thing, only a handful of people are saying this worldwide. But a hundred years from now, hundreds of people will be saying this worldwide. And as we have all these great moves of God in Africa and Central America and South America, eventually it will get to the point where they begin to understand it's not just mass quantities we need, like the conehead people, mass quantities. We need uh, What we need is the real thing. If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll be able to... So God will start taking the church back to purity, back to its biblical patterns of leadership and servant leadership and plurality of leadership, back to the power of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, back to true non-reductionist, full apostolic ways of looking at Scripture. God will build his church. And no matter where you are on this continuum, and no matter what burdens you, uh, you know, I, I always love it when I, when I just ha happened a few, couple, two or three different young Christians this week, started getting overwhelmed by the presence of God and crying and so forth as they were reading about the Holy Spirit in some cases or reading about evangelism and discipleship. And, uh, and they start, you're getting the burden of God. And when God starts to give you a burden, he doesn't do it to frustrate you. He does it to guide you so you'll chase that all your life. Whatever was the greatest experiences of God's presence when you made the greatest commitments before him, never stop chasing that. So I wish I could spend more time on this, but we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. And if you can really get this Christian truth, draw near to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. Don't do as performance-based Christianity would do when you, when you see that you fall short, whether privately in your own Bible studies or some brother or sister confronting you. Get over defensiveness. Be confrontable. Be challengeable. Uh, love means always having to say you're sorry. And, and come before God and say, God, I don't measure up. Rescue me. I need a rescuer. I need a deliverer. I need to be a new creation. I need you to change me and sanctify me and make me more Christ-like. And Jesus, no matter what you're going through, one of the reasons you need to study the Gospels again and again and again is whatever you're going through, Jesus already went through that for you. 
I can't think of a human temptation that Jesus didn't go through for you, that he can't sympathize and empathize, yet because he didn't sin, he can also empower you to overcome. And that's why grace is not the modern definition of just undeserved favor, but it's the biblical definition of undeserved favor leading to empowerment to grow, change, and become the fullness of God in Christ Jesus. Amen.